Good morning, Australia. Good afternoon or good evening, United States. And if you're in Europe, you're probably not going to catch this live because it's probably some <laughs> ungodly hour over there. But um, Chit Chats with Gitcats number 52. Can you believe we've done that many? Um, firstly, I just want to give a little shout out to some sponsors that have jumped on board of late. Um, and I'm going to be holding some giveaways soon. You need to be a subscriber a subscriber to my channel in order to be eligible but i need some ideas folks i need to be able to give this stuff away and run some competitions um, with thanks to summer cable et guitars and chicken picks um, so if you want to get a dose of that swag please come up with some ideas of how i can promote my channel and uh give you guys the goodies in the meantime because um, i ain't no marketing guy i'm just a guy who plays guitar who has had to learn to do all this stuff as we all have and um ding dong who's at my doorbell it is no other than mr leland sklar hey lee hey <laughs> How are you? i'm doing very good thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to me i know you're a very busy guy you've got your own uh live chats that you've been doing well, no, I've, I've been waiting all, all day for this. I've been poised and, and, and sitting at my laptop, staring at it, going, only another 20 minutes, only another. So we're here. Let's have some fun. <laughs> That's great, mate. Thank you very much. And, you know, I, I really love doing these. My, my coffee mug says no bad days. And to wake up in the morning and actually have people lined up like yourself to have a chat to that. I've yeah. seen on the television and uh, in, in concerts and everything since I was a teenager. Um, it's a real buzz for me, man. It totally is. And you're one of those guys, you know, you're a pretty identifiable looking chap, I must say. Well, the glue's finally sticking here. It's, just, it's, it's almost <laughs> gone. <laughs> I think the first time I ever saw you would have been in the movie Roadhouse back in the 80s. You were in oh the house God. band on that. Yeah. 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 Oh, and since wow. then... Since then, I've just seen you around. I've come to realize there's three guys, you may correct me on this, three guys that I notice get all the good bass gigs. Um, and it seems to be yourself, Pino over on the other side of the pond, and Nathan East. I, yeah. I noticed that you three guys are the guys. And, there, um, there's, there's, a number, there's a number of them. Bob Glaub out here in Los Angeles also works. He's been with Jackson Brown for years, and yep. um, he does a lot of stuff. So... You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice circle of, of friends. That's the nicest thing about it is everybody supports each other. And I take it all you guys are just easy to get along with because that's, that's one thing when it comes to session guys is people want to – you'll get the gig because you're just – you're on time, you, you know the parts, and you're just an easy guy to get along with. So I'm, I'm taking that um, most of you guys fall into that category. Most, most. <laughs> I mean, you, you, it's a profession. You want to treat it professionally. And so you, you are on time and you're prepared. You know, it's like we always say, like, if a session starts at 10 in the morning, if you're there at 930, you're late. Uh -huh. you good, good boy scout. Always be prepared. Now, have oh. you just froze? Oh, there you are. You're back. You're back. Sorry. Yeah, your, your, your image froze for me, too. Um, it's uh, it's one of these things that, you know, you get there on time, you set up, you're ready to go. And so when the, the 10 o'clock downbeat comes, you're prepared, you're tuned, you've gone through. If there's any kind of music to look at, you've looked at it just to see whether or not there's any uh, things that are going to scare the crap out of you in there. And you better, you know, check out. So 
Um, uh-huh. But it's a, it's a profession, and you treat it professionally. As much joy as it brings. It, I can think of worse jobs to be doing, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Lee, I, I did say to you, speaking of being prepared, that I actually do these without being prepared, and that yeah. I simply ask the person what started the love affair with the guitar. But in your case, it's the bass. I'm going to ask you that question, cut to you, and I'm going to go open that door that's right over there because I've just realized that the sun has come out and it's going to be very hot. So I'll be back in just a second as I throw to you and ask, what started the love affair with the bass guitar for you? Okay. um, When I was uh, a little kid, I started studying classical piano when I was five years old. I became enamored with piano. And I, so I studied piano up till I was 12 years old, went into junior high school, assuming I would be the piano player. You know, I, I was accomplished at it. And the music teacher, his name was uh, uh, Ted Lynn. He said to me, he said, we have a lot of kids that play piano. We need a string bass player. And he pulled out an old K upright out of the back room, put it in my hands, held it up, plucked one note on it, felt that vibration run through it. And I looked at him, I said, I'll do it. Wow. And at that point, I, I, I was kind of burned out with piano at that point. So um, piano became like a dominant factor for me. I mean, uh, bass became the dominant instrument. And, uh, and I just kept, kept at it. Uh, the only thing that was a drag was when I started joining bands, uh, you were sitting there bleeding, trying to keep up with the drummers and the guitar players with their amps. So. Uh, finally, when I was about uh, 15, I think, uh, my father took me to a music store and I got my first amp in electric bass. I got a St. George amp and a melody bass. Wow. And uh, and that changed everything for me because suddenly I was in contention with the other guys in the band. Um, you know, wasn't, you know, sitting there flogging myself all, all night long trying to, you know, be heard. And, and that would I, hurt. I'd be, yeah, and I've you know I've never really looked back, but I never really anticipated that I was going to have a career at this. When it, by the late '60s, I was always in bands, but I, I was pursuing other things in my life because it just seemed like music would be one of those things that was uh, not remote, but just what you know, one of those things that would be a real hard world to uh, to break into. And overnight, everything in my life changed when I ended up meeting this this guy who was in town uh, named James Taylor who had just, uh, you know, come back from England and was getting ready to do a gig at the Troubadour here in Los Angeles, and they needed a bass player. And I had met him at a rehearsal with a band I was in, and he came and hung out. And uh, my life was forever changed at that point. And what age were you at then? Uh, Probably 19, maybe. Yeah. You know, about 19, 20, right in there. Somewhere. We, so probably 20, probably 20. Were you playing gigs before then? Yeah, I was. I mean, sometimes I was in four or five bands at a time, but n- nothing that would have ever gotten any attention. Just local bands playing bars and parties and fraternity parties and things like that. But um, and, and I had only been in the studio, recording studio one time um, before starting with James. And that was the, the band I was in called Wolfgang. Um, he... Uh, he was friends with, uh, it, it, was com- it was complicated. We had a drummer in the band named Bugs Pemberton, who was in a group called Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in London, who um, were kind of rivals of the Beatles at the time. Oh, really? And, and Bugs, moved, uh, Bugs moved to Los Angeles, and he had a friend named John Fishbeck, 
who uh, owns Crystal Recording Studios in L.A., and he did all of the early Stevie Wonder records, like Songs in the Key of Life. And, so, and he would come and hang out at our rehearsals, and at one rehearsal, he brought James with him because they were friends, and James had just come back to town. But when I was in Wolfgang, we ended up uh, going in the studio and cutting some demos, and that was my entire studio experience uh, up to that point. And then I met James, and all of a sudden, he became like one of the biggest things in the world. A whole new, it's a whole new trend in music began here on the West Coast, and uh, we were in the thick of it. And all of a wow. sudden, I was working every day in the studio, trying to learn how to do it. <laughs> it was pretty, uh, pretty insane. So, when you first met James, um, was there that immediate man? This guy's got it. Did you did you know that straight oh, away? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you you knew immediately as soon as he sat down. He said, "Oh, we said play us some of your songs," and he sat down and, and had a guitar with him and and played. And we all just kind of looked at each other and went, "Holy crap, this guy's really good!" And uh, and it was fortunate because because of that meeting. Because when he got offered his gig at the Troubadour, they had Danny Korchmar on guitar and Russ Kunkel on drums and Carol King playing piano, but they didn't have a bass player. And James told Peter Asher, who was managing him and producing him at that time, he said he had met this guy at a rehearsal and thought he would be the perfect guy for it. And they tracked me down. And I really thought I was going to play one gig with the guy. And then that was it. And it basically turned into the rest of my life. Wow. So you just don't know. Man, you never say no. I mean, I will. I, that's one thing I can put out as words of wisdom is, man, if, if an opportunity comes along to do something, you never know what's going to happen. So go do it. And yeah. odds are it may not do anything, but it could be a life changer. Yeah. yeah. Now, you, you mentioned James uh, as being the, the Kickstarter of it all. Um, yeah. It's It's been recently that I've seen a few clips and just really noticed as a guitar player, his finger-picking, man, it, it's great. He's unbelievable. And that's one of the things. He's probably one of the most underrated guitarists. I mean, he, his style, like whenever I was working with other, other people like Clint Black or, uh, or um, uh, so many of the musicians, the Steve Warners, all these guys, Vince Gill, all they talk about is James's guitar playing. Um, it, but it, it's one of these things that the guy has abilities in all these areas as a singer, as a writer and all that that you don't really quite realize how great he is at that at that thing but but it's a hard it's a hard style to cop um, in the same way with Phil Collins i mean everybody thinks of Phil as a songwriter and the front guy and all that but his skill as a drummer is is uh, is incredible um, but that's the, that's not what people normally think of or they think that he was the drummer in Genesis and that was it but uh, he's one of the best drummers i've ever worked with too so you, you never you, these guys are you know they're they're pretty powerful forces absolutely many levels yep so when you started with james did you start getting requests from other people immediately to come and play on, on other sessions or yeah well the thing that was was amazing and and, and all of us talk about this the, the the core of guys who were around at that period that were involved was we owe so much to peter asher because one of the things with Peter was uh, up until this point, when you look back at the, if anybody's familiar with the Wrecking Crew, which was all of them, the L.A. musicians who worked through the 60s, um, 
none of them ever got album credit. So people would be listening to Frank Sinatra, the Mamas and the Papas, the Beach Boys, never realizing they were listening to the same musicians on all those records. Peter, when we started with James, insisted that our names appear on the albums. So all of a sudden, when the Jackson Browns and all these other artists started coming along, they would look at James as kind of like the benchmark of uh, what they would like to be doing. And they would look at his album and, and they would say, well, kind of these guys are good enough for James. Let's call them for our thing. And uh, and that really was what got our careers launched, I think, was the fact that we had album visibility uh, as far as names go. And uh, so people would track us down. I mean, we were all pretty easy to find. We were all you know listed through the union and everything. Yeah. And uh, the phone started ringing. And the next thing you know, we were doing, you know, on an average of three, four sessions a day, five, six days a week for, you know, over a decade. Um, wow. All the, I mean, it was a it was a ferocious period of time work wise uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. And we were just fortunate that an, an opportunity became available and we had the goods. Because yep. a lot of times you might get an, off, an opportunity to do something, but you really don't have the chops or the taste or whatever's needed for that. Like your whole thing may be a whole other style of music. Um, so we were lucky that it was like a perfect storm. Everything just kind of lined up perfectly for us. And we were off and running. It was amazing. And wow. still at it. Yeah. And you said like three to four sessions a day. Do yeah. you forget what you've played on? Do you sometimes hear songs on the radio and go, that sounds like me. Did I play on that? Is yeah. that something that happens no, yet? Well, the, the hardest part of everything, not, not a hard part. The, the in, most interesting thing has been during the course of this pandemic as I started a YouTube channel. And and I'm every day I'm either playing or going or, or reviewing songs that I've played on and uh, and playing along with them or just discussing them. And, and so it, it for the first time in my life required me to go back into like things like all music and these different in Wikipedia and actually looking at my career. Cause I never really gave it a thought like, to me. It's all today and tomorrow. It's not then. Um, but all of a sudden I'm finding things. I, I go, I, I don't remember playing on that. And then I listen to it and I go, Oh God, I remember now. And I look at the notes and who was on the date and I'm just going, Oh God. Yeah. Now I remember that. So it's been a real enlightening year for me. Uh, to uh, kind of have revisited my career. But there are times when you're in a, like a supermarket or someplace and you hear something and you kind of kind of going, yeah, that's cool. And then you go, oh, crap, that's me. I, that's, I remember that now. But one of the things that happens, too, is when we're recording, generally, you know, I'm there for the rhythm section dates. So there's many times where I've finished a project and I'm gone. Then they then they bring in background singers to string or whole you know stuff or I never really heard the singer I don't you know was the artist wasn't sure. there when we were recording so I'll hear something and I'll kind of get into it and but I don't really recognize it because I didn't hear it completed originally but then all of a sudden there's some familiarity in it and then it's suddenly I go God that's that I never heard it you know so yeah right it's pretty cool it's actually pretty cool so what is it about your own playing that you recognize that you go Hey I think that's me. Well, I, I've, I've got like little signature things I try to do when I'm when I'm working. I mean, it changes from genre to genre, you know, so I, I can't, you know, say I did the same thing on everything. But I, I try. I, I, I've always been a song person um, and the song is everything to me. I'm not a jam guy. Even I go to jams and stuff, but that's not really where my heart is. I really love songs. So um, 
when I'm doing it, I, I when I'm doing a session, I'll listen to the song before we've started recording, and I try to figure what the thing wants from me. What can I do to contribute to this? And then I I, uh, I find my parts, and then I always try to like maybe find a little spot where I can throw kind of a little signature lick in or something like that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll hear something, and I, and it's not till I hear like that lick that I realize that it was something that I did. Yeah. And uh, and I, but uh, you know there are other times where I'll hear stuff, and I and I it's me, and I have no idea, you know, because because it's 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 so different than from the first time I heard it. So you said that, that you know, you're normally putting down the tracks uh, at the start as part of the rhythm section, um, but then also that you're throwing in little bits and pieces. Do you find that hard to do if you don't know what the vocal is or what the actual star is at any point in a song? Are you you're just sort of taking a, a guess as to maybe this needs something here? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I would much prefer even if the even if the artist isn't there, if they had somebody coming in just to do a guide vocal. Um, because without the vocal, it's really just a track, and uh, and you don't know. And, and there's times where I've heard some things I've played on where I went, I thought to myself, if I would have known that was going to be going on, I wouldn't have done that. Um, but without guidance and now knowing the the parameters that you're working in, um, you're just you're kind of guessing. And I, I've been fortunate that my my instincts have been pretty good throughout my this whole 50 plus years of doing this. Um, but there are times when I hear something and I kind of go, man, if I'd have known that was going to be the vocal on this or this is what they were going to do, I would have probably approached it a little bit differently. But that's not your call. That's, you know, that's up to the producer and the artist and you know, how, how dedicated they are to the project. Yeah, know? yeah. So has there ever been any songs that um, have come your way and you've, you've done the session and you're thinking, yeah, that's, that was pretty ordinary, that have actually been surprisingly oh. hits? Oh, yeah. And then there's other times, though, where you think this is going to be huge and it never gets released, ends up on a shelf and never even sees the light of day. So it can go both ways. But, yeah, there's been times where you've done uh, I've done sessions and they seem kind of mundane. You know, you kind of go. I mean, I give my I give my 100 percent no matter what, because I always look at it as when the phone rings and you get the call for work, you have two options. You can either say no, I don't want to do it or say yes. And if you say yes, it comes with obligations and you go in there and you give it your best performance, regardless of if you think it's the greatest thing you've ever heard or it's pretty mediocre or whatever. But yeah. you give it your best. But there have been times where I've worked on some projects and you kind of hear these songs and you kind of go, it doesn't hit you. It doesn't just go with you. And uh, next thing you know, it's like the number one record or it's just won the Grammy or whatever. So um, I'm not a I'm not a great judge of that. You know, I, I, I'm a I'm a good judge of, you know, to me, good performances. But sometimes a song will just hit people in a way that didn't hit me. Sure. So, well, it all comes down to taste, doesn't it? I mean, music is yeah. all about personal taste and what you like somebody else will think is absolutely yeah it's total it's totally subjective uh well life is so subjective i always i always try to equate that like you could go to an art museum and be standing next to somebody looking at a painting and you're having the 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 most incredible spiritual experience looking at this painting and the person next to you is going what a piece of crap you know you know i mean it's just one of those things but it, it it's like i always it's always difficult like i get a lot of guys that write to me and say can you recommend a good base? And I go, man, you know, go try bases. You know, I mean, uh, uh, 
what I have is good for me, but that wouldn't necessarily be good for you. And I, I kind of look back. A, a funny experience I had was uh, I was doing an album, and I'm trying to remember his name now, and I'm just suddenly blanking on it. But he was the singer in the Hollies, the lead singer in the Hollies. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we did, one of the tracks we did, they wanted to have myself and John Entwistle both playing on it. And I remember sitting in the studio with John and he tried my bass and I tried his bass and neither of us could play the other's instrument. His action was so low and my action is high because I came from upright. And I mean, it was just a funny thing. We both looked at each other and laughed. We just went, man, I can't believe neither of us can get a sound out of the other's instrument. And then the minute we handed him back, it rocked. So it's yeah. all subjective. Absolutely. You know, I can relate to that. I, um, I keep my action Alan, really low. Alan Clark. Alan Clark. Alan Clark. The, yep. I think that was the singer's name. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's all to do with how, how you touch the instrument. And you said you come from yeah. the, the upright background. Um, I got a guitar over here, a beautiful Friedman Vintage S. Ooh. That, um, Ooh, I love this. Yeah. But um, I have the action so low on that that it's on the verge of buzzing for me. And mm -hmm. I, I hit fairly hard. And I hear other people pick it up and it just starts fretting out. I'm thinking it doesn't do that when I play it. So it's, it's all about yeah. the touch, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember years ago, Bass Player Magazine every year would do a, uh, they do their big event and then they would give out like two Lifetime Achievement Awards. And um, so what, a number of years back, they gave me the Lifetime Achievement Award and Tony Levin got it at the same time. Yep. So I, I went back to New York, but I didn't bring a bass with me. And I, I said, I'm not going to play. And Tony brought his whole band because he's local and, you know, Jerry Murata and these guys. And, and, and they played at the thing. But Steve Bailey, they kept saying, why don't you at least come up and play, you know, start status, you know, do, do that. And I said, I don't have a bass. So they got me, they loaned me Stu Ham's bass. And... Um, I, it was probably the worst I've ever played because Stu has all these incredible techniques of tapping and everything. His action is so low that I'm sitting up there going, I could not get a tone. And I'm sitting there thinking, holy crap, I just got a Lifetime Achievement Award and I sound like a monkey that just got a, a, a bass and it's sitting there flogging away on it, not knowing what this thing does. It was so embarrassing. I couldn't stand it. Yeah, I've actually seen um, footage of Steve Vai and somebody's handed him a guitar live and said, "Oh, play!" And he's just looked. And he said, "No," because he, he'd have he's his real setup. specific in his setups. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Now, just with the way things have changed, are you doing sessions from home now? Do you have a home studio, or do you? Um, I don't have a home studio, and this was really weird. I've n I had never up to this this year ever recorded at home. I kind of used it. Um, it's first off, it's not would not be my preference for recording. I like recording with other people, not just sitting by myself. But um, I would tend to use uh, when somebody would say, can we send you files? Can you do something? I would use it as an excuse um, to have a social life. So I would call friends of mine that had studios and I'd say, how about if we get together and we do the space part and then I'll take you out for pizza and we'd hang out and stuff. So it was great. But with the advent of COVID, needless to say, all of a sudden, we weren't seeing each other and nobody was getting together. Uh, a friend of mine named Gussie Miller contacted me and he said he and some friends were going to do a cover of Easy Lover, uh, Phil Collins. And they said, we'd love you to play on it. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not set up recording. I don't, I don't have anything here at home. 
And next thing I know, he had friends at SSL. So they sent me an SSL 2 plus interface. Um, and then I, I contacted Steve Postel, who's one of the members of our band, The Immediate Family. And, uh, and he gave me a, a, a over the phone tutorial of GarageBand, because really that was all I needed. I didn't need logic or anything like that. It's just yep. to do baseball. So um, I dialed in uh, GarageBand and uh, ended up doing the track for them. And then I just did a thing for the, um, the, the Grammy premiere show uh, with my friend Cheche Alara. Um, I, I've just did uh, tracks for Julian Lennon and I'm doing some stuff for Ian Pace from Deep Purple. And so I've had all these guys sending me tracks and uh, and I'm, I'm not doing a ton of it because I'm really busy doing a whole bunch of things. So I haven't really opened the door to home recording. Um, but a, a lot of friends um, have been contacting me and I did uh, like a track for Joe Williams on his new album from Toto and uh and all this stuff seems to be working. Everybody's really happy, and I've heard the finished products, and everything seems to be working. And I'm going totally flat. I'm not doing any effects or anything like that, just giving them straight-ahead bass parts. And what I usually do, since we're not together, is I'll do maybe uh, four or five passes, and I send them a whole bunch of passes so that they can, if they want to do any kind of cutting, I try to like do one maybe simple and one with some more movement and yep. give them a few options, which are things if we were in the studio, we could discuss on the spot and take care of, and it would be nothing. But all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting files back and forth and stuff like that. So I try to initially give them as many options as possible. Uh, and I've enjoyed it, but it's, it's, it was just nothing I ever really had a, a hunger for, because I really enjoyed going over to friends' houses if I was going to do not be in the studio. Yeah, uh, just to go over and be with somebody else, just to talk about the parts too. Yeah, you know, just to, it's it, it's, it's, it, the connection with other players that makes music for me. It's not me sitting by myself. You know, I I'm a band guy, and uh, that's the way I think. Do you, do you find yourself um, overly critical of your own playing? Like, if you were left alone to just be tracking things yourself, things that people would normally go, "Man, that's perfect." Are you sitting there oh, yeah. overanalyzing, going? Oh, I can do better. I can do better. Because I find that's a trap for myself. Yeah. I'm horrible. I'm just horrible. Yeah. I, I'm never satisfied with anything. I always go, oh, let me just do it one more time. And they're going, God, you know, it was perfect. And I go, ah, just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all usually our own worst enemies. Uh, we're in the studio. Somebody would say, look, we're moving on to the next tune. We got it. We're happy. It's all great. Yeah. But you're sitting at home and you're just kind of going, oh, no, no, no. I could do a little bit better. And plus, I don't have my chops up enough to punch. So I've been trying to like do top to bottom performances. And sometimes you're like, you'll be going, oh, this is so good. And it took me a while to realize, well, shit, if I screw up the last verse, it's cool. I can just go in on another track and just do the last verse and then they can go ahead and edit it together. But I, I come from, I'm real, when it comes to performance, I'm real old school. I really, you know, it's it, it would be like somebody contacting me uh, or even being on a session uh, where they go, oh man, that chorus is great. We'll just cut and paste it. And I go, no, man, the next chorus needs to do something. It needs to grow. It needs to have some. So, but you know, I always look at it, I look at it and I go, look at when I walk out the door, I want to be happy. But when I, when I walk out the door, if you suddenly just go, no, let's just cut and paste it. It's fine. That, that's your prerogative. It's, it's your project. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to feel I've done my best uh, that I can do. And, uh, and, and whatever gets done with it afterwards, that's, that's their call. 
I totally hear you there on not wanting to, to copy and paste because especially from the bass perspective, um, and I'm not a bass player, I'm a, I'm a guitar player, but I do know that the note length, variances in the note length has <coughs> so much effect on the feel of the song. So I'm oh, guessing absolutely. that when you're saying copy and paste, know that you're probably thinking something like um, the second verse that I need to hold those notes just a little bit longer to add a bit more tension or something. Is that is that what you're thinking? Yeah, well, it, it, it's a lot of things. It, it, it's also not, not only just the, the length of a note, but uh, the, the first chorus might kick in, but you want like a, maybe a slightly busier second chorus where it really takes some, or that second chorus might be leading into a bridge and you want to set it up better because it's a whole other vibe that you're not going in. You're not going from chorus to verse. You're going from chorus to bridge. So, but there's just a lot of people that they, ju they just look at it all as little segments, you know, and they let's just put all these in, in order and it's all fine. But I'm just I'm far more anal about how I, I like to approach things. So I would just like to be in a position to uh, to leave having done my best performance. But once I walk out the door, they can have they can do whatever they want with it because they own it at that point it's theirs and uh, sure yep yeah so is there one particular genre that you sometimes get asked to do and people think that you're comfortable with that you kind of go oh man I, i'm really i've shown you all i've got uh when it comes to that like I, I i can't play country i can't play jazz i'm a rock and roll guitar player i might yeah. know a couple of licks but i know that a, a genuine country or jazz player would just be looking straight through me going, oh, those little cliches, huh? Um, nice try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there something for you that you go, okay, I'm going to fake this one? Well, uh, probably the genre that, that I might feel that way a little bit because I hardly ever get to, to play it. And every once in a while, they, they, you'll be doing a session and they'll go, let's do this, let's do this reggae. You know, and, you know, I can fake reggae, but it's not like Sly and Robbie, the guys who wrote the book on, you know, bass and drums and that. There's a very, there's incredibly, not specific, but there's a, a thing about reggae, bass and drums that to me is so intoxicating. And I know enough about it to, to fake my way through a session. Um, but it, it's not something that you live and breathe, which those guys really had, had, that, had that stuff down. So... Um, my, I, I kind of go, oh, here we go, kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not thrilled about it, but I don't let anybody know that, you know. And and I and and generally, when I've done it, they're they're all really happy, because very few people really understand. It's it, it's not like I was suddenly flown to Jamaica and thrown in a situation of having to do a you know a reggae album with guys that that's all they've ever played. They might look at me and go, wanker. You know, kind of thing. Um, but but most of them, I, I know enough about most genres where I, I can go in and I'm pretty confident in them because I've just I've just done enough of all kinds of different things that uh, that I, I can kind of assimilate into whatever I've got to do. Yeah. If if I really felt uncomfortable, um, I would probably say no to the date if I knew that that's what it was going to be. And I thought, you know, I'm not the right guy. Here's I know. Call this guy. He's great because. It's like I started on Upright, but for almost like the first 15 years of my career, nobody ever called me for Upright. I was always electric. And so it's not like riding a bike. So my chops kind of went down and, um, you know, I just wasn't that confident. So I got called to do an album a number of years ago with a guy. And it was kind of like a 
sort of like Harry Connick before Harry Connick came up. It was that kind of jazz thing. And um, Ahmed Erdogan was producing it, um, who, who was the head of Atlantic Records and everything. Um, and they, it, I, I knew they, I suddenly went, you know, they're going to want upright on this. But I said, look, it, I, I've got a Washburn AB45, which is a big uh, acoustic five string. And I made it into a fretless. And the thing really has a unique kind of uprighty sound, but it's different. And I played it for them. And they said, oh, this is great. No, this will be perfect for it. But we got down to like the, uh, two, the last two songs. And I, I looked at them. I said, this really needs upright. This is an yeah. upright couple of tunes. And it was, at that time, John Patitucci was still living in Los Angeles. And I said, look, it, let me call John. Have him come down. He'll, he'll get the stuff done in a take. And it'll be unbelievable. And it's great. And I did. And he came down. And I, I said, I'm off the clock. I'm done now. Let's just, you know. And I hung out it's just so I could hang out with John and stuff. So I know my limitations. And I know where my strengths are. And if I feel I'm being asked to do something that isn't going to be the best thing for the album, I'll, uh, I'll tell people, I'll say, let's call this guy, you know, he, he, this is what he does every day and it's unbelievable. You'll yeah. love it. And uh, yeah. I'm not that concerned. And Jeff Picaro was like that. I mean, I did a lot of sessions with Jeff where he would just go call Jim Keltner. Keltner's the right guy for this track. You know, and, and, and I really believe in kind of sharing the gigs with friends that are, you know, that I think are more qualified for specific gigs. I'm happy to call them rather yep. than just trying to be good enough sure. for it. Yep. So, Lee, um, starting out uh, back when you did, that's a lot of years of playing some, some very loud rock and roll. How's your hearing? What? <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's damaged a little bit. Um, from all these years of playing, but um, the only time I really, really notice it myself is if like, uh, and I haven't noticed it for a year, but like if I was in a restaurant and it was a noisy restaurant and you're at a table with a bunch of people, some conversation, like some of the mid-range probably has been damaged a bit, but I can walk into a liquor store that has like um, ultrasonic burglar alarm in the place and I can hear that pitch. Yeah. But I, but you know, but I'm missing... You know, like I've got the extremes at both ends, but some of the stuff in the middle has been a little, little tweaked over the years. Because I was, I never was one of those guys that liked to wear earplugs playing. I thought it just removed you too much. And I'm also not a guy who's ever liked um, in-ear monitors. I, I still like a wedge. I like the, the feel of sound pressure mm, around same. me. Yep. So, uh, so it, it's, it's been somewhat affected by it, but... Uh, I know some people from this business that are that are actually profoundly deaf from from years of, of you know, and it's not like guitars or anything like that. For the most part, proximity of the bass to the drums can be difficult, like when you're next to cymbals and the yep. guy starts writing the cymbals and you're getting that bam right, you know, right in your head where the guitars are loud, but you, you can kind of deal with that a little bit easier. Yep. Yep, I'm well aware that I'm a bit down in my left ear, and that is back in my teenage uh, years, rehearsing four nights a week with the drummer right there and his cymbal. And yeah, it's later now that, especially wearing these noise cancelling headphones, as soon as I put them on, I'm well aware of the bing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> can get quite annoying. Quite annoying. Yeah. Um, you're strictly a finger player. Yeah, I yeah, I never played guitar, so I never really had any kind of pick chops and i probably could have if i had not been 
busy doing what I was already doing. Um, and uh, every once in a while, you know, I would get requests to play with a pick. And normally, like I've cut them back because I've been doing lots of work around my house. But I would like keep like these. I can't tell where the camera there we are. I would keep these two nails kind of long so that I could, you know, kind of fake pick. Or if I knew I was going to be doing some stuff, put some, you know, some stuff on there just to toughen up the nail. Um, you know, like so many guitar players I knew that do finger picking, you know, and they end up putting all kinds of different um, things on their fingernails just to give them twice the thickness and all that. Um, but uh, but basically, I'm, and I don't I, 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 I'm not a, I've had wrist injuries, so I'm not really a slapper um, at all. So pretty much everything I do is, is just finger finger related. Okay. So you said uh, the injury. Now, I did notice that you play multi-scale bass. Does that help out with the fan frets? No, um, I, I just, a lot of the work that I've done over the years was replacing synth bass. Um, people have done programming, and it seems like every time they're doing anything on synth bass, they are always at the bottom of the keyboard. They want to get as low as they can on it. And I was really frustrated that I could not find a five string that was really killing me. Um, and then I was at a NAMM show, and it's got to be like 18, 20 years ago now that this guy came up to me uh, named Sheldon Dingwall, and he said, would you check out my bass? And um, I looked at it, and I said, and it had the, the Novak's fan fret system on it. And I said, explain this to me. And he said, look at you know, you open a piano, and the low strings are longer than the high strings. Sure. I mean, it's just kind of that. It's not like the buzzy feet and tuning system or any of these kind of things. And I said, God, it makes sense. So, so I went and plugged it in. And I heard that B string. And I just went, sold. <laughs> Uh, and, and I became, uh, I just love that. And it's not so much, it, it, I don't think about the fan fretting. I think about the sonics of the instrument. And it's got one of the richest Bs. In fact, my, uh, all of my dingwalls, the B string has a hip shot on it. So I could drop it to an A if I need to. Whoa, okay. And it, they read perfectly as a note. Because most of them would be da-da-da-da, boom. You know, that B string on most five strings so was kind of just a lot of air moving, in, but not a lot of center to the tone. Yeah. And the ding walls just did it for me. So um, so for, for me, it really had nothing to do with injuries or ease of playing. It was really a sonic. The thing really, every time I would bring it into the studio and be doing a session, the engineers would go, what kind of bass is that? You know, because they'd never really heard that kind of clarity coming off of the B string. Yeah, right. Uh, and it became my kind of go-to bass for touring. Uh, I'm not one of you know, like I, I see a lot of gigs where the bass players on stage and they got a whole rack with like a half a dozen ten basses behind them. Um, like when I was out with Toto, Phil Collins, Lyle Lovett, James Taylor, um, I would bring two basses on the road, and one would be with me on stage, and one would be a, a redundant duplicate of that on the side of the stage, just just in case something ever broke or went wrong. Um, and rarely did it, has that ever happened. But um, I, I've, I, I've talked to like sound engineers about this and they just, they just loved that aspect of it where I went, let's get a great tone and you can center everything around that on stage rather than me bringing out all these different instruments and you gotta have different channels and re-EQ and all this stuff. I tend to just through touch and location on the bass, I can really cover a lot of lot of territory. And on all my basses, I put mandolin frets on them, which is the smallest oh, really? fret wire. Yeah, it's the smallest fret wire you can get. 
So even if I'm doing a song that was fretless on the recording, if I ease up my playing um, and maybe have like a little pitch shift or something on that, it can sound like I'm playing a fretless on stage, even if it's fretted. Wow. Uh, so I tend to use like one bass for the whole show. And, uh, and I'd use the five because I figure if I have one note in the show that requires an E flat, yeah. then I'm going to have a five string for the whole show. And, but when I play a five string, I approach a five string as though it's a four string and it has that extra bottom if I need it. So my parts don't change where I see a lot of guys, the minute they have a five string, they're dropping half their parts in octave to be down really low. And I go, no, because to me, a lot of times, if you go that low, you're creating kind of a sonic hole between you and the guitar. Sure. Where a four string bass and the guitar really have a tougher, you know, more cohesive sound. So um, I'll tend to play my five strings as though they're four strings. But if I need, it gives me just the extra movement. Or sometimes I'll save like if I'm playing like in C and suddenly we get to the last note, I might do a gliss down and just hit like the low C, just as a, as the penultimate note, just to give it this sudden weight that happens at the end. So it's, but it's, it's, everything's predicated again on the song and the needs of a song. So I don't have any rules. It's all, my rules really are, are song to song and not as a general rule. Okay. Do you have an idea in your head of what a good bass sound is? Like when you are dialing in sounds, do you have like yeah. a... Can you describe yeah, what that I, is? I, I think, I think, I think I really know what what's what song, what sound I really look for, and I and, and I kind of dial in a very similar song, uh, sound on. Uh, I I've got like a, about five bases that kind of cover my whole life, um, and um, and I I get a pretty similar tone out of all of them. I like a really rich, th- th- fat bass sound but just with enough top end for clarity on it. But I, I don't really don't like like a lot of fret noise or things. I'm not a scratchy bass. I like a really rich foundation for whatever you're working on um, to give um, the other instruments just a great, you know, pad to yep. sit on. I like clear. I like the clarity and everything. And, 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 and most of my basses are active. You know the ding walls and stuff. You can pop your your volume switch and go from active to passive, however you. But I rarely use the passive switch. I'm, I I kind of like the parameters that an active circuitry um, gives me. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I kind of have my go-to sound. Uh, I, I you know, but each each bass has its own personality. So there are certain things like I have a signature model with Warwick, um, and it's based on their Starbase too. And um, and it's it's a semi uh, uh, well the one I we built my signature one is a chambered bass because I wanted to change the body shape a bit but the regular star bass is an is an acoustic body and so it really fulfills some other areas that my other basses don't so if I feel the song really wants that kind of a richness I'll use that bass but uh, when it comes to touring then uh, uh, even if I use that on the recording chances are I would probably use the five the ding wall. Because I only do a four-string with Warwick, and I only do a five-string with Dingwall. I didn't want to be one of these guys that are going, "Oh man, dudes out there hawking everything," you know. Because I see these bass players; they're they're in every ad for every company, you know, selling every, you know, anything. And I I only have put my name on a couple of things, and they're things I specifically use, and and all, and I they have very specific uses and needs to me. I'm not a not a hustler. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> that's good, mate. That's good. Now, you mentioned um, some injuries. Is that an overuse thing? Like, No, that's just that's just life. It was a life um, injury, yeah? Yeah, I mean, just over over the course of a lifetime. Do things sprain wrists. You have some ligament damage. Um, I've had a lot of, like, I have probably more stitches in my hands than anywhere else on me from doing, you know, I, I used to do machine work and stuff. So you get cut and, you know, working with metal and stuff. And next thing you know, you're looking down and seeing a, a bone in your fingers. So, I mean, I've had enough things where there's certain mobility things that have been somewhat affected over the course of these years. But I mean, I'm, I'm I'm going to be 74 in May. So, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, you start adding all those years up of just flogging and beating yourself up and uh, it takes its toll. Absolutely. Uh, but so far, but I still I mean, I haven't had any gigs that were completely compromised by anything like that. It's just maybe in the back of my head, I, I might go, oh, God, man, I just I, I'd love to be doing that lick, but I'm just not nailing it right now where I could have done it maybe when I was 23 but it it hasn't affected the outcome of a gig so it's just my own personal way of dumping on myself yeah yep yeah. so we do have quite a few people watching live and and dropping yep. a few questions and i'm just going to sure. say to the folks please feel free to leave your questions there i'm not getting to them just yet because it's very hard for me to actually give Lee my full attention if I'm yeah. looking down at the chat thing. So I will go back and go through those a little later on. And I, I do have a couple of things that I still want to ask Lee about. Um, and one of them, Lee, is yeah. when I was at NAM a couple of years ago now, I um, was sitting there check, checking out a piece of gear and I had a set of headphones on and I looked up and you were standing right in front of me and I sort of looked at you and just went, Mr. Sklar, nice to meet you. Can I get a photo? And you you were like, yeah, sure. And all I said was, can we do the thing? And you knew exactly what I was talking about. And yeah. <laughs> How did that come about, man? Well, it's it's weird. And I never was one of these people who was running around giving everybody the finger. You know, I mean, it's just weird. But now I've got a big coffee table book with 6,000 pictures in it of people like everybody from Charlie Watts to Phil Collins to James Taylor. I mean, you name it. But what happened was on the, our 2004 tour with Phil Collins, it was the um, first final farewell tour. Um, during the course of the tour, there was talk that Phil might retire at the end of that tour. And uh, I was thinking, man, you know, there's so many. We had like 100 crew people on it. I mean, it was a giant family and we were out for like a year on the road. And I thought I may never see a lot of these people again because they were from Europe and the UK and all over the States. And it was a really kind of an international crew and the band, too. They were from everywhere. So um, they had hired a, a bass tech for me on the tour. And normally I never had a tech on any tour. I would just do all my own gear out doing it. Um, so but this guy, Steve Winstead, his nickname was Chinner. Um, he came in like ready. He was so overqualified and ready to work for me. And he said, what do you need? And I went, I don't know nothing as far as I don't know. Um, so we had, we had kind of a running gag for the whole tour of, you know, like every time, you know, he'd, I'd, he'd say, what do you need? And I'd look at him and he goes, yeah, nothing, nothing. And so he w was working for everybody. He was working with the drums and percussion and all this. Well, I thought I may not see a lot of these people at the end. So I, I'm going to, put together a little photo album of the tour and so i was going to take pictures of everybody's the first guy i go up to is chinner and he's sitting at his laptop working and i say hey chinner give me a smile and he's working at his laptop and he just kind of 
doesn't even look at me, just goes, gives me the <laughs> finger. And I look at the picture and it was, I mean, it's all in good, good fun. Yeah. And I looked at the picture and I went, oh, this is actually pretty cool. So I went, got Phil, Tony Smith, his manager. I got everybody in the band, all the crew, the truck drivers, caterers, everybody had about 125, 130 pictures, put it away for a couple of years. Then I went on the road with Toto and I thought, God, are those fingers? That was really fun. So I got every Luke and everybody in the band and all the crew guys to do it. It got up to about uh, 250 pictures at that point of people flipping me off. It took on a life of its own. And then all of a sudden I was getting, I would just go up to people and say, can I flip me off? <laughs> and they would like, they were all over it. And, and I got like, like the Nokia theater in Los Angeles. I got the entire theater to flip me off. I've got massive. I ended up when I did my book, I had over 12,000 photographs of people giving me the finger. Wow. And we, and we had to bring that down to 6,000 for the book. And the book is like this huge high end, real high quality coffee table book that weighs like six pounds. It's a, big massive book but the pictures are just so much fun and i don't look at that as as a as a, a pisser or anything like that yeah. it's just yeah. everybody that did it was having fun and it goes the whole gamut of people going like this to people going yeah you know it's <laughs> the whole the whole uh the whole kind of it's a it's a reflection of humanity on it so it was one of those things but man nam show was fertile ground I'd go there and guys would come running up and give me the finger and go, hey, I'm supposed to do this, aren't I? You know, and they would give me the <laughs> and I would go, cool, cool. So it's, it's been really fun. It's, and it's one of those things like you end up meeting people like, you know, I was on a, on a ship and, you know, people like Jane, like Jeremy Irons and, and people like that, actors like that, man, they were thrilled to do it. Uh, you know, Penn wow. of Penn and Teller, the, the magicians. Yeah. Uh, I've got Jerry of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Yeah, I mean, it's like you you kind of name it. But I've also got like winos that I find on the street, people I meet in on airplanes and in the airport. And just every day, it's a reflection of everyday life. And the commonality is all just get a finger. Yep. And so it's, it turned into like people, there's an expectation with me. But it was nothing I ever did before Chinner flipped me off at the end of a tour. And that's, wow. he's the first picture in the book. And I tell the whole story in the book with the picture I took of him and say, this is where it started. Cool. And, uh, and where is the book still available? Where can folks get it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I ended up having, I mean, I've done this. I have a friend named, uh, his nickname is Blue and he has an, uh, an art uh, publishing uh, company. And we met at a party and I told him about the idea and he said, let's do it. And he, I had the time and all that. Um, so I, but I, I've been self-published and I've been doing all the shipping and everything myself on it and all the signing and, and personalizing, but I went to do a website and somebody had, had bought up LelandSklar.com or, and LeeSklar.com. I'm kind of going, screw this. I'm not going to pay somebody to have my name back. So yep. if somebody wants to check the beer, uh, the, the book out, uh, you go to Leland Sklar's beard dot com and and on that website is the book i also did t-shirts that have my beard on the front of them so you know there's all these people walking around with my beard on the front of their shirts and i was a i was a graphic artist and painter in college and now i've got a whole bunch of my stuff is available we've done really high quality reproductions of that 
Um, so if lelandsklarsbeard.com and you can order the book there. And if you want it uh, personalized, you just have to you know write down what you want. And it's 60 bucks for the book or 80 bucks for a, a, a signed personalized book. And I okay. mail it to you. I'm going to have to jump on that one myself, right? That sounds like a great great book. It's really fun. It's really, in fact, I just, I shipped a book, a book to New Zealand this morning and one to um, Australia and one to Spain. So, I mean, they're kind of going everywhere. Cool. Cool. Now you mentioned the beard. At what age did did, did that, did you start growing that? And have you ever Uh, shaved it it off? um, Not since I grew it. No? Um, I, I, when I was in in high school, well, first off, I was lucky. I come from a Russian-Polish background, so, you know, you get that Eastern European thing. So I started kind of beginning to shave when I was about 12. Um, there was enough beard. And the thing that was really great was um, I would grow, like, an iron jaw and uh, beard and stuff. When I was, like, 14, where I could go play, like, in the summer when we weren't in school, I would grow enough of a beard where I could go play in clubs that were like I would never be allowed in if they knew I was underage. Sure. Um, that, but when I got my high school diploma in 1965, I said, I'm done. I stopped shaving stuff. And um, I, I cut out this part at one point and just had big mutton chops and a big handlebar mustache. Yep. But then I finally, everything was too much work. So I kind of keep it cut where it's not getting in my strings when I'm playing. That's, that's kind of my reference point for the length is not playing and having it muting me and, and things like that. But uh, it's been a lot. I mean, I've been married 50 years now and my wife's never seen me clean shaven. Wow. <laughs> when you, when you it's mentioned. Commitment. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now, yeah. when you've mentioned to people that you're a musician, you play you know, in well-known bands and stuff, do people immediately assume that you might be in ZZ Top? Well, I get, I, I've always gotten that kind of stuff. I get ZZ Top or Oak Ridge Boys or, you know, there's a few guys with beards. Now, the, one of the funniest things was, um, I was I've been involved with an organization called Canine Companions for Independence, which raises uh, and places service dogs for people that, that need that. Um, now, last time uh, we did our big auction uh, fundraiser, um, I, I called a bunch of people. I called Cheryl Crow and Willie Nelson and Billy Gibbons and all kinds of people and asked them if they could donate instruments um, to the thing for the auction. And they were all great. And they all they sent instruments. Well, I asked them each for an autographed picture that I could put with it, you know, displayed and all that. Well, at that point, Billy Gibbons had left town for a tour in Europe. So he wasn't able to get me a picture. So I went online. I just figured well, I'll just get a picture of Billy and, and frame it and all that. So while I was doing that, I noticed there was an article about Dusty Hill, yeah, the bass player in ZZ Top. And I thought, oh, I'll go check that out and take a look. So I'm reading the article about Dusty. And as I'm scrolling down, all of a sudden there's a picture. And it's my picture. <laughs> Yeah, I was going, and I and 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 I did a, a a screenshot and sent it to Billy, and he wrote back in the biggest font he could, just ha 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 ha, you know, uh, he's a great cat. But yeah, I, I've always been like a massive ZZ fan, man. Live their shows were so good, and you know, just just like the ultimate bar band kind of thing. So 
but it was so funny when I'm looking, reading this article, and all of a sudden there's a picture of me in Dusty Hill's article. <laughs> it's funny yeah. because uh, before I'd locked in a time with you, I do have a um, a Facebook group, um, which anybody's welcome to join. Chit chats with Git Cats, uh, and as I'm lining up people and don't have the date locked in, I'll I'll drop hints to who might be coming on, and I mentioned cool. um, that. It's about time I showed my our bass playing um, brothers some love, and that I reached out to one of the big guns, uh, the bearded one. And I was just wondering how many people thought I was talking about Dusty. But <laughs> who knows? Who knows? You know, there, there's a few of us old dinosaurs still around. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, a lot, there there have been times where like I'm out and somebody will be driving by and they'll see me out front and they go, "ZZ Top, ZZ Top." Um, which is fine, man. I the idea of being associated with those guys is, you know, yeah, you know, I, I love them. So you know, it, it's it's I, I look at it as a uh, as with much respect. Uh-huh. Um, I did watch the documentary about them there uh, that just came out and f- over fifty years together with the same lineup, man. That's that's commitment. Yeah, it, it really. Well, that's the situation we're in with our band, the immediate family. Um, literally, we're in our 51st year of playing together because um, wow. we started as the section, and then that ter- then that ended. And we, but that's it's Russ Kunkel and Danny Korchmar and myself been together since 1970, and then around 73, Waddy Wachtel started working with us, and he's in the band. And then about 16 years ago, I started working with Steve Postel, and he became a member of the group. But basically, the fo- four of the five of us have been together for. 50, you know, 50 plus years. And it's amazing. I mean, it's really amazing the things that evolve within that kind of a relationship because it's never been a bad one. We've never had words between us. We've never had fights. It's always been incredible amount of respect and uh, admiration for each other. And we love hanging together. And it's really like a, and so the Danny ended up naming this uh, group because it was the project of his that got us together. And he, he said, I'm going to call it the immediate family because we really are our immediate yep. family. Yep. Awesome. That's yeah, really cool. Now, Leland, when I was talking to Larry Mitchell last week, and Larry's actually watching, he's dropped a couple of really nice comments in the, um, uh, in, in the, in the chat room. He actually said, that he learned more in the first week on tour with you than years of playing and and having out with other musicians. Just your approach to professionalism, playing, rehearsing, and communication. Thank you, Lee. So that's from Larry Mitchell. Oh, well, Larry's great. We were uh, we were on tour with Tracy Chapman, and um, Larry just he's such a beautiful guitarist. He's just a wonderful musician and a great hang. And we had we had such a good band on that. Rock Dedrick was the uh, the drummer on it and Larry and John Thomas was playing keyboards on it. And we had, it was such a good band. And every night I, I just enjoyed Larry's playing so much. And we would see each other every once in a while at the NAMM show and kind of catch up for a moment. But uh, man, Larry. (laughs) Now I bring up Larry because I think, I think Larry's in, I mean, he might be in the book. I'll double check. I think Larry might be in my book. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I just lost my train of thought. That's okay, because I've got things written down here. <laughs> Why I brought up uh, Larry was um, he mentioned that in this day and age, we've had to become television producers. And I see that you're quite prolific in your YouTube channel. Is it a daily thing that you're posting? 500, I, I, 500 episodes, that's a lot. Well, t- tomorrow will be my 500th 
video since March 23rd of last year. Um, so just the other day, like six days ago, we celebrated the one year anniversary. I had a little cupcake and a candle on it because I really look at my channel as a family. It's not like me and other people. We, we've really created a pretty remarkable um, group of people on this. And um, but so I might put up two videos. So um, tomorrow's going to be my 500th video. And I haven't missed a day since the 23rd of March of last year. I mean, wow. I, I wake up every day thinking about this and uh, and do But I don't spend time prepping. Uh, I really I just jump into it. I pick a song or a couple of songs and I'll, I'll either play along. I have only done things on the on the channel that I've played on. I'm not just bringing random music in. There's only, I think, one song that I did on the channel that I didn't play on, and that's Rubber Band Man um, uh, by the Spinners, because Bob Babbitt's bass part on that is such a stellar thing. I think I played along with it, showing his bass part. But for the most part, everything I've put up is something I've played on, and I'll either play along showing the bass parts, or I'll just sit in and talk about the thing and then we'll listen to it as a group. And um, and twice a month I do a live stream that goes for about two and a half hours. Um, so it's a chat window and I'm and I'm just sitting there. But the friendships that have evolved with all these people from all over the world has become really profound. And I've, I think I, I've got one hundred fifty one thousand fans on, on the site now. Wow. And. Uh, so it's it's really great. I, I I I am enjoying this so much, and it's nothing I ever thought. But it's man, it is so low tech. It's in the room where art we started, where uh, the uh, the Wi-Fi is kind of crap in there. But it's this junk room that I got just stuff all over the place in there, and um, the chair squeaks like crazy, and and everybody goes, "No, don't oil it, don't oil." We love the chair and. I've had mannequins sitting in there with me and stuff. So it's it's pretty goofy, um, but it's a lot of fun. If anybody wants to check it out, it's just Leland Sklar channel on YouTube. And uh, and if and what I did was I created a clubhouse on that. So if people want there, each video has a link. Well, each video has a link to the website where they where you can look at the book and artwork and T-shirt and that. And then there's the clubhouse, which also has totally different t-shirts and hoodies and you know dog bowls i mean you kind of, i have auto pictures of autograph that people can buy and stuff um but they could join the the, the clubhouse on that and it's just like ten dollars a month and that's the two live streams and a lot of communication and perks with that and then once a month which will be this coming saturday i do um, a one-on-one uh, thing for about 15 minutes with each person and it's Skype or FaceTime and they can sign up for that. And so I, I you know, I, I've tell people, I said, man, I was never cut out for retail. <laughs> it's like <laughs> all of a sudden, like dealing with books and shirts and all this. And then it is a challenge yeah, uh, yeah. All, all the time. But this year was a year like no other that we've ever experienced. And, you know, and I had a really busy year ahead of me that just evaporated like a fart in a windstorm. Yeah. And uh, so all of a sudden, like every other player I knew, start to think, what the hell can I do now? Because hmm. um, work was uh, touring was gone. Work studio work was gone. And uh, and the the, re, the the way I started the YouTube thing, which really was an accident to me, um, we had just uh, like the year before finished um, Phil Collins is not dead yet tour. 
and we were playing like a lot of huge arenas and stadiums on that tour. And so I had some guys writing to me going, you know, we saw the show, man. It was amazing. It sounded great. You know, there's just sometimes in those places, it's really hard to hear all the nuances of, of parts. And so what I did was I contacted Michelle Collin, who was our front of house mixer. And I said, you know, I had him send me a show. He ended up sending me the show we did in Adelaide. And um, and so what I thought I, what I decided to do was just put up a, 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 starting with the first song of the show, I would put up a song a day. Um, and and I, so I plugged I plugged in a little Bose speaker into my laptop and then I had a, a little bass amp on the floor next to me and I kind of played with them until you could hear the track going on but the bass was just a little bit louder than rather than being in the track yep. so you could hear all the nuances yep. um, I, I did the first song like that and by the third day of it I had people writing to me going man we love your YouTube channel and I go what are you talking about and they go, oh, no, the YouTube channel you're doing. I, I said, I have no idea what you're even talking. It didn't register in my mind that this was a, now a channel. Yeah. And and so I, I went in every day and I did another song until I got almost to the, the only song I didn't do was Take Me Home. Because uh, I kind of went, that's kind of the penultimate song. So I'll wait till like a couple of years from now when I'm at my last video. Sure. And I'll do Take Me Home at that point. Yeah. Um, but I got to the end of the show and I kind of went, Jesus, what am I going to do now? I'm really enjoying it. So I started to dig into the archives. So I pulled out like, you know, I did some songs from Spectrum with Billy Cobham that I did. I did um, Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt. And I just started digging into all kinds of stuff. And and literally, I've been sitting at this computer every day since last March 23rd, putting up a video, at least one a day. Wow. So, and you say, and, and it's all songs that you've you've played on and you're up to... 500 episodes yeah wow yeah i mean i've worked on during the course of my career i think i've worked on somewhere around maybe twenty-three thousand songs so i mean i can be keeping this and i've told people a lot of people said man i just hope you don't stop this when we come out of the pandemic and and i said absolutely not i said what that'll do is it'll only enhance doing this because then i can take it on the road i can yeah. set up a camera at, at sound checks introduce people to have you know conversations with people because right now we're still kind of locked down so everything i'm doing is out of this room um where once you know like with our band we're actually this sunday all all of us have had our shots so we're forming our own bubble and we're going to go in and a, a friend of ours has a studio that they're not using and they're going to give us the studio for three weeks to rehearse in. And we're going to get together every day, work on new material, work on our old material, because the gigs we have potentially lined up aren't until at least October. But we just want to we just want to be playing. So this is going to be great just to. And I'm going to take my, you know, my phone. I'm doing everything on my phone. Yep. You know, so I'll take it up and I'll set up a little tripod and you know, film some of our rehearsal and introduce everybody to the guys and, you know, get the, get the, the, the site more, um, more interactive. Um, cool. So it's not going to end at all. It's just going to, to me, it's only going to get better. Well, that's awesome, man. Like you, when things change, you just need to adapt and some people yeah. can do that. Others are stuck in their, in their way. And it's like, well, things are different. I don't like different. So yeah, uh, just testament to you being at the forefront for this long. Uh, is the ability to, to adapt and change, huh? I love, I mean, I love working and I love inter interacting with people. 
I've always been a fan-oriented person where, like, we would be out playing the big summer sheds, and most of the guys, like, we'd finish sound check, and they're all hanging out down in the dressing room. I'd go out and wander the lawn. You know, people would recognize. I'd sit down with people and have dinner with them and talk with them. And some of these friendships have gone on for 30, 40 years that wow. people I met at gigs and stuff. So I yeah. really... You know, when I'm home, I'm, I'm pretty much a loner at home because I have things around my house that I like to do. But when I'm on the road, I like interacting with people. I, you know, finish a gig, we come out of a gig. And if there's people out there, I'll stop and talk to everybody and, you know, take pictures. And I think it's a two-way street. Without them, man, we don't have anything. We're just a sound check. Yeah, yeah. You know? yep. So well, you know, I'll, I really... I'll, Go ahead. Uh, on the other hand there, uh, you... You're quite the fan yourself. I've seen that you've got not one, but two bases that you've had autographed by quite a few people. I'm going to let you yeah. tell me about that. I have a bathroom right there that I need to just excuse myself. Uh, <laughs> as you tell us about your base, I have wireless headphones, so I can still hear you. Okay. Well, we built a base back in, in 1973, 73, 74. One of the great watering holes in Los Angeles uh, for musicians in those days was Westwood Music and Fred Wallachie. It was his his store. And you'd go in there anytime and you'd see you know, an amazing bunch of characters and Jackson Browns and all kinds of people just hanging out playing and stuff. Um, but there was a uh, the guy that ran the repair department and it was John Carruthers. And I, at, I, and I have no idea how I ended up with it, but I ended up with a 1962 precision base neck. No body, no, like nothing, just an abs, just a neck. And um, it sat around for a while. And then I thought, you should do something with this. And there was a company out here in Southern California called Charvel that made aftermarket um, instrument bodies. And so I, I and th their factory wasn't that far from me. So I went to went to their factory and there was a huge stack. They had done a run of precision based bodies. Now, I'm not a P bass guy. Uh, I like Fender jazz bass and not precision as jazz would be my go to instrument. But um, I went to this stack and just hung each bass body from a piece of wire and just tapped on them. And one of them resonated so beautifully. I said, I'll take that one and bought this bass body went to Carruthers with it. I, I, my bass that I was using at the time was a 62 jazz bass that I carved up in the 60s and it's got peace and love and all kinds of shit all over it and stuff. Um, I took that bass to John and we did a profile of that neck. And then so we, we popped the frets out of the precision neck and reshaped it into a jazz neck. Now, when we were refretting it, I was walking around his, his shop and I saw this fret wire hanging on the wall and I said, what's this stuff? And he goes, it's mandolin wire. And I said, let's try that. And he went, oh, that'll, that, that won't work on bass. I said, let's try it. I said, if it sucks, you know, we'll just go ahead and refret it with, you know, with bass frets. Well, it was one of the best things I ever did in my life. Every one of my basses has mandolin frets on them. Um, and then we took the, the precision body. But what we, we got really deep into this. Um, we ended up putting two sets of precision pickups where jazz pickups would have gone on the body. We routed it out for those. But I kept thinking about it and I went, you know, I mean, Leo Fender was a genius. But it, it seemed to me like when you were looking at a, a set of precision pickups, there's, there's two pieces to them. And the piece that was on the G and the D string was the closest half to the bridge. 
And I thought just by the nature of the clarity of those two strings, that actually should be the one that's closest to the neck and uh -huh. have the other half be on the A and the E string, which is closer to the bridge. So we reversed the two sets of pickups. And then in between those pickups was a cavity where the origin, if you were going to be doing a precision bass, that's where the pickups would have gone. Um, I ended up with some of the very first EMG pickups when Rob started EMG. And I run them 18 volts. So I, so I put the two 9-volt batteries under in that spot where the pickup would have gone. And we just made a cover for it. Cool. And then it's got a badass bridge. It's got like the first hip shot prototype detuner and all kinds of stuff. It was, yeah. And it's one of those things. We built a base that you could have plugged in and it could have sucked. You don't know. You know with, Man, we plugged it in and John and I looked at each other and went, oh, man. And that's been my go-to base for, you know, since 1973 or four, whenever we built that thing. Now, it sat as just, you know, nothing on the body or anything like that. It just was a you know, wood body on it. Uh, in 1981, the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team won the World Series. And we got called to go in the studio with them. And they wanted to cut We Are the Champions, Queen. And so we went in and... Um, at the end of the session, they were all going crazy. They had just won the World Series the day before, and they were still drinking and shit. They were going nuts. Um, and they were signing baseballs for us. And I said, hey, forget the baseball. Sign my base. And they went, really? So a bunch of those guys signed my base. Then I went on the road with James Taylor, and I was at a thing. And Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan, who were on the Pittsburgh Steelers football team, saw the base. And they said, oh, baseball players are pussies. You need football players. So they signed it. <laughs> Then people just started signing it. So, I mean, I've got, you know, I mean, everybody from Jeff Picaro on there to George Lucas to Vinnie Caliutas, Clapton, everybody's on this thing. Merle Haggard, um, Andy Griffith. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. But I never clear-coded it because it was my main instrument. So a lot of people have come and gone on this thing. Really? Then, then Yamaha built me a bass that they thought would be kind of like that because I was working with Yamaha at that point. So they built me a bass with a, a, two sets of, of P pickups on it and everything. And it, But it was really weird. I think I, that bass arrived when we were either doing In the Pocket or Gorilla albums with James Taylor. And when I, the Japanese contacted me, they say, what kind of finish would you like? And I said, just make it jet black. Jet black would be great. Well, this bass arrives and I open the case and I'm kind of staring at it. And then all I could think about was I love the Japanese because they have this kind of there's a, a thought process that's so um, so them because I opened the case up. And the base was all painted. It was black painted with flames. But the flames were coming from the wrong end. They were coming from the bottom the other way. And I'm sitting there going, why? And then I'm thinking, I said jet black. And they're going, jet, jet engine, fire, flames. I mean, to me, that's probably what went on. Yeah, yeah. But it really looked funky. So I ended up sanding all the all of the flames off of it. And um, and so it then it looked funky. And so I went over to Yamaha and I, they took the base apart, just sprayed it black for me. Then I started carrying um, gold and silver metallic markers with me. So I would end up doing these gigs. And I thought I was and I was doing gigs with people like Bob Hope and Milton Berle and Debbie Reynolds and Mel Torme. I mean, you kind of name it. Um, Bar you know, I have Barbara Streisand's on it. Carol Kay signed that base. 
And once the base got really pretty full up, I took it back to Yamaha and we took it apart again and clear coated the body so that the signatures wouldn't rub off. So for me, I have three instruments that mean the world to me. And it's not because they're the greatest instruments in the world, but it's because of what's on them. Now, the the Frankenstein base, which was the one that we built that, you know, from with the Charvel body, I end up calling it Frankenstein because it was like body parts. But actually, in reality, Frankenstein was the doctor and not a monster. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other thing. But the only and the only other instrument for me that really has that kind of pedigree to me is I have a Hofner um, that I used on B.B. King's 80th birthday album. And when we finished it, I had B.B. King sign the pick guard on it. And I have a photograph of me sitting there with B.B. while he's signing the bass. So nobody could say bullshit. That's not B.B. King's signature. Yeah. I've got the picture. So, I mean, the thing that means the world to me is, is the people that have signed those bases, because those are all people I worked with and, and stuff. So there's a real emotional attachment on that level. But for the most part, you know, the, the, they're basically all firewood. You know, they're kindling. Yeah. You, know, it's, yeah. you know, it's not like you're sitting there with a Stradivarius. There's, you know, some remarkably incredible acoustic instrument. They're, you know, they're just lumber, you know, yeah. but they have their own thing. And my history with them is so long that they've become like an extension of myself. Man, you, you played with so many artists that I, I, I was going to ask you, you know, what's the one artist that you look back on and, and think, yeah, I played with that person, you know, so, so proud. But uh, with a career like yours, that would be impossible to do, wouldn't it? Well, it's impossible because there's so many artists in so many genres. But I'll still one of my favorite records I ever played on is Stratus um, with Billy Cobham. Uh, I'm, I mean, Spectrum. Uh, that was just a magical two days when we did that because our group, the section, which was the band that you know played with James Taylor and Jackson Brown, so we ended up on the road um, opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra, and we spent about six weeks on the road together. We all became really good friends, and Billy Cobham and I became friends. And he got offered a record deal to, and he called me up and he said, you know, would you like to come to New York and and do my album? And I said, oh, I'd love to. Are you kidding? And we went to uh, Electric Ladyland Studios or Electric Lady. And um, and I, I got in there and there's Billy and Jan Hammer. But the thing that blew my mind was Tommy Bolin played guitar on that. Yeah. Now, Tommy Bolin and I were friends back in the days when he was in Zephyr and I was in Wolfgang because we were managed by the same people. And so we did like gigs together and stuff. So I walked in the studio and saw Tommy and it was like old home week. And that album to me is just an amazing album because uh, it's one or two takes of each song. Um, n- everything's live on it. Solos are all live. There was, there, there's one point in one of the songs where Jan Hammer and Tommy Bolin are trading licks back and forth. And Tommy starts to do these bends and he's going, rah, 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 and you hear, rah, rah, and he breaks his E string in it. But he keeps right on playing, finishes his solo, plays the head and everything. And then we never went back in and fixed it. It's on the record. Wow. Um, so I, I look at that one. And, and to me, if I go into almost any situation musically in the world, and if I sat down at the bass and started going, everybody jumps on it, man. Everybody wants to play Stratus, you know, or, 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 or Red Baron, any of those songs. So yeah. to me, that's what that's one of those one of those um albums that will ever will forever like be in my psyche and yep. it sounds as fresh today as it did you know in 1973 was when we recorded it 
So uh, it's pretty amazing. But, you know, so many things. All this, I love what I did with Phil. I love what I did with James and Jackson and Ronstadt and, and Vince Gill and all these, you know, it, there's been so many genres, the Richard Marxes and Hall and Oates and Streisand and, and you know, all, all of these people. So I feel really, really fortunate that I've had the, the career that I've had. And the thing I feel really most fortunate about is, uh, is I'm still busy and I'm playing in a band with my oldest friends that my oldest friends in the music business. So, I mean, it doesn't awesome. get much luckier than that. Absolutely, man. Yeah. I mean, Good we have you. our, we have, we have our third video just came out. We have a single that's out. We have an EP that's coming out and our album was supposed to be out last November. We finished it before the pandemic. Then everything got screwed up. It's coming out at the end of August. And Danny Tedesco, who did the documentary film The Wrecking Crew, is doing a documentary film about us right now, which should be finished by the end of summer. So there's a lot going on, you know, so it still feels vital and uh, and uh, alive. Awesome. Awesome. Lee, I'm going to go back through some of the questions now, mate, and just see sure, what, please, uh, what people. Questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, OK. <laughs> now, the very first question is from a chap named Pooh Ninja. Great. Pooh Ninja, <laughs> I went to Germany to a, a YouTube event uh, a year or two ago, and I was picked up by a chap wearing a shirt that said, I love Pooh Ninja. He's a, just a, an uber fan of all the, the guitar YouTubers out there. And right. he wants to know, what's your favorite song of all time? Not just your work, but overall favorite today. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's uh, That would be just so hard to... I mean, I, I've, I've loved music. So, I mean, there's just, you know, thousands of, of songs. Um, I will say that still one of my very favorite songs ever to play on stage is, is In the Air Tonight with Phil Collins. Yeah. Because the, the anticipation and the tension that that song builds for an audience um, is palpable at every gig. And yep. you can feel the, the tension to, waiting for that drum solo, uh, that drum fill to hit. And I get goosebumps every night on stage playing that song. Now, it's not, you know, it's, there's other songs. I mean, I love Aaron Copeland and um, Ralph Vaughn Williams. And, you know, I mean, there's like thousands and thousands of songs I love. But that one, for the emotional impact that it has on an audience, when you just know when that hits, there's arms are up playing air drums and people are going berserk. Cool. Um, it, that's one of my favorites. Awesome. Um, Link Hillard, big fella Link, wants to know who your favorite drummer that you've ever worked with is. Boy, again, these are, these are hard. Because one of the greatest blessings that I've ever had in my career is the amount of other musicians I've been able to play with. I haven't been a band guy who's just playing with like one or two guys in his entire career. So it's for me, it's run the whole gamut of, of you know, I, I could be working one day with Russ Kunkel and the next day with Vinnie Caliuta and the next day with Dave Weckl or Greg Bissonette or Jim Keltner, Jim Gord. So there's been just so many over the years uh, and so many. I've been really lucky that you reach a certain level in this business and everybody's really good. They're all a little bit different and they have their own thing. But uh uh, boy, that yeah, I, I really I think my relationship with drummers has been really one of the most remarkable opportunities for me in this business, and uh, really, yeah, hard to hard to pick one out of that. Yeah, uh, another one here. How long has Leland been playing with? Now, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce this right. Waddy Wachtel. 
Wadi Wachtel. Well, Wadi is part of the immediate family. He's part of the band we're in. And the first first time I ever worked with Wadi, I think, was in 1973, doing a Bobby Womack record. And he was like an R&B singer. Um, and that's and Wadi had come out from New York, and he'd been playing with the Everly Brothers and, and stuff. And he ended up in Los Angeles. And we ended up on a date together. And the minute we met, we knew we were going to be friends forever. Um, and I feel so fortunate to be in a band. I, I talk to Wadi almost every day still. And we've been together, you know, like 48, 49 years now. So cool. Cool. He's, he's a great. He's great. Uh, another question from Michael Nikki Foridis. Foridis, sorry, my Greek surname pronunciation isn't so good. Uh, does Lee have a favorite bass player? God. Again, you know, when it gets down to these favorites, it's really, it's really so hard because also you're dealing in different genres. Because you know, in jazz and stuff, I always love you know, like Thelonious. You know, I mean, um, Ray Brown and um, Charlie Mingus and so. But I was a, I still am a huge McCartney fan, you know. I love Paul, a huge Pino fan. Um, but there's all there's all these guys, and there's a lot of bass players that people don't even know about. Um, there was a guy named Bobby Lydic in Los Angeles. He's no longer with us, but he uh, was the bass player and did all the Seals and Croft records. Um, uh, Tyran Porter. Who did all the Doobie Brothers stuff? You know, I mean, when you see these lists of bass players, these guys are never on it, and they're just, you know, amazing. Um, and, and certainly Jack Bruce and Ant Whistle and Chris Squire and you know all, all these guys are really wonderful. So, you know, it, you get into different genres, and there's guys that are really great in their specific genres too. So, I'm I'm, I'm like an I've always been like fanboy. Yeah, I just I really dig other players and stuff so it's like you know anthony jackson's and and you know victor wooten and and you know and, and edgar myers i mean kind of it's like so many of these guys that are just amazing yeah. so now you uh, mentioned I hate being non-specific but i really can't be specific because i really do adore all these players you mentioned uh, Seals and Croft just a second ago and yeah. i'm just going through my uh comments here and louis shelton um yeah. who is who produced most of that stuff says, hi, Rick and Leland, enjoying your chat. Uh, and then a couple down, somebody says, uh, the real Louis. Yes, that is the real Louis. He's just lives around the corner here. Um, <laughs> and I did say hello to Lee from him uh, before we went on air. Um, I'm just going through the questions. There was a there. bunch of guys I knew from L.A. that moved to uh, Australia. I used to work with a keyboard player named Larry Mahoborak for many years in Los Angeles. And yeah. he had some jingle accounts in australia and finally uh left la and he moved to australia and i think leon gare lives in australia and he was one of the major bass players played on doors records and oh, cool. stuff yep. and i think um joe wisser lived there for a long time and i did like helen reddy with him because I, I played on i am woman and all this stuff so uh, the chap that wrote that friends. song sorry the, uh, the, the chap that wrote yeah. i i am woman uh lives on the gold coast here co-wrote it i should say uh yeah. just Ray Burton. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's, I have a lot of connections with Australia. There's a girl named Corinne Gibbons in, in Australia who I did. She did. A, a, I met her doing an album in Los Angeles where she was doing a, a kind of a tribute to, to the Carpenters. We were doing stuff and she sounds a lot like Karen Carpenter. has that kind of a honey voice. But she's doing all kinds of like really incredible things for like women empowerment and stuff. 
and I spent a bunch of time hanging with her when we were last in Australia and uh, recorded with her. So there's a, a, a lot of connections down there. I, I really love it there. It is More a great questions. place. More questions. Okay, so Nick Jacobs says, I have a few questions for Leland. So great. We'll, see, we'll see if he can get those in. No, he's only dropped a couple there i am going to say folks i normally have a little icon that pops up in the corner with a like subscribe and all that and i haven't for some reason that's not loading up today so please like subscribe share all that kind of thing um nick wants to know what is your favorite james taylor song and why um once again you're dealing with a guy who's got a remarkable body of work but one of my favorite songs that that, that we ever recorded was mill worker um and because the way James has this ability to take um, the thought of a woman working in, in, a, in a shoe factory, you know, under, in, under repressive conditions and make it sound so understandable and so connected to what this woman was feeling and stuff. I mean, he, he wrote it for a uh, Studs Terkel um, play called Working. And uh, I think Brother Trucker was also for that. But um, Millworker is just one of his, he, I remember he played it for me and he was thinking, I think we did it on Flag. And he was saying, yeah, I think this is good enough. And I'm looking, I'm going, are you kidding me? You kidding? <laughs> but James, you know, he's one of the most prolific writers of the generation. And he's turned out so many incredible songs. And like most bass players, they always love Smile and Face. That's one of the ones they really love the bass part on that and stuff. But James, some of his real deep internal songs on some of the albums were really some of the more remarkable pieces of, right? And it's interesting with him because almost all of his all the hits that he had radio play were all covers. Oh, really? You know I mean, like on the, up on the roof and and you've got a friend. I mean, those songs weren't his songs. Sure. But they were the ones. But the songs that that his writing to me is. It's like his guitar playing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's in a world unto itself. Yep. yep. It's really, really remarkable. Uh, Nick also wants to know, do you visualize scales when you improv a session or do you like to rehearse beforehand to really refine your parts? Um, neither. <laughs> when, I, when, I start, when I start playing, I don't want to sound like metaphysical or anything like that, but I tend to... Um, going to a different base, you know, like I hardly have ever played anything twice the same way. Um, so like, uh, I really don't like, if, if I'm rehearsing a show, like when I went on the road with Toto, I had five days to learn their show. Wow. I immerse, I immerse myself in their music because it was, it's not a jam band. It's a very specific part. So, um, but like, I never want to rehearse to do an album with anybody because to me, odds are that first couple of times that you're going to run that song are going to be the magic. And you want to capture that in a studio and not in a rehearsal room. Um, so I tend not to, uh, I, the only time I do any kind of rehearsal in, in advance is if it's for live gigs. Um, and I never think about scales. I really just play instinctively. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not analytical in my playing. I really am more emotional. I kind of just internalize and let the song carry me and let me it, let it take me to where it wants to go. But I know some guys that are sitting there and they, they're thinking about Mixolydian scales and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, yeah. I never think about that, that at all. I just I just go for it and I'll, and I'll, I'll sketch out. And, and when I go to work, you know, in the studio, I mean, so it runs the whole gamut from absolutely notated charts to nothing 
to Nashville number charts, to chord sheets, to you get whatever you get when you get there. And I kind of like to be in the middle. I, I'm really happy with a chord chart because yep. it'll give me direction and guidance without getting specific. And then I can use my stinks to go, but I'm not spending all my energy trying to suss out the song. Yeah. Because um, the chord chart will at least give me a, 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 it's like having an outline for a story. I don't want the whole story. I just want an outline so I can yep. kind of fill it all in. Still be you without, but yeah. have, have yeah. the, the basic roadmap, huh? Yeah. Uh, now, one last question from Nick. Nick, I hope this is uh, worthy of a uh, like and a subscribe and all that for getting three questions in. Um, have you ever been in any toxic band environments that you didn't want to be in? If so, did you endure them because you believed in the music or did you just get out of there? Um, the only time, I mean, we talked earlier when this all started, I've never, I've never done drugs and I never drank or anything. Uh, it got, even with the best gigs, it got to be difficult times to be on like long bus rides with people that were high or drunk. You know, you get the guy who all of a sudden is going, I love you, man. I told you I love you. And I'm sitting there going, I got eight hours of this bullshit. I mean, yeah, I'm right. Gaff, yep. Gaff tape them up and throw them in their bunk and shut the curtain. Um, I've never really been in a situation. Oh, I was in one situation where I quit on it. I just I did not like the, the personality I was dealing with on it. Um, but for the most part, um, I try to be as easygoing as I can, but I'm also stand up for things. And um, uh, over the years, uh, my dogs are out going nuts. Outside. I can hear them. Yeah. 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 Um, for the most part, though, I've uh, I've managed to get through everything pretty, pretty unscathed. Um, some things are more enjoyable than others. And, and there's times where you get on the really long tours where you're out for six months or a year at a time. And uh, it becomes like your alternate family. Yeah. And you, you can't wait to get home, but you're really dreading leaving this group because you've become so close. And, you know, we spent so much time, uh, not just you know, gigs are only a couple hours a day. The rest of the time is like, you know, trying to, you know, finding your time, finding time with other people, going out and having adventures in different cities around the world and stuff. So, uh, but I really, I only really had one where I just, I called the manager. We had a break in the middle of the tour. And uh, I said, I don't care what you do, but you get you got to get somebody else because I'm not coming back. Yeah, it's a hard slog, man. Being on the road, being twenty four seven. There's a question here. How did you find Rebecca Johnson from Australia? Um, I ended up. I, I'm I'm an insomniac, <laughs> so I'm up usually really late at night. And then having you know gotten so involved with YouTube. I, I've always loved YouTube you know, ever since I discovered it. Um, but I, I was just going through it and I saw one video of her and I just went, are you kidding me? And um, I started watching all her stuff, started writing to her and promoting her on my channel. I, talk, I would talk about her all the time. And her band is so good and she's got such a great vibe and she's such a badass bass player and such a great singer. Um, that we write to each other on a pretty regular basis. And, you know, we've been, you know, being supportive to each other during the pandemic and the shutdown of work. But she is a shining star for Australia to me. She is one badass musician. I just wrote her name down there. I'm going to have to reach out to her and get her on for a bit of a chat. 
Oh, you should, man. She's she is incredible. She's something special. Yep. Matt, speaking of Australians, uh, I've seen you um, in the past. You've been very fond of Billy Thorpe and your time playing with him. Do you care yeah. to reflect on, on playing with Billy? It was fantastic. Um, I got a call uh, from a producer named Spencer Proffer, who had a studio called Pasha uh, in Hollywood. And he contacted me and he said that he was going to be doing an album and he wanted to know if I'd be interested in, in working on it. And it was Billy's Children of the Sun album. And um, so I went, I, I went down there and, and uh, I met Billy. I mean, we were, it wasn't like I was going to go, I, do I want to do this or not? I mean, I was, I was doing it. Um, ended up going there, meeting Billy. Just went, this guy's incredible. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of boned up a bit on his history for his, his childhood, you know, entertainment and all, all the stuff with the Aztecs and everything. Um, when we did the album, oh God, don't let me, don't let me forget. Oh crap. I'm trying, I'm just uh, suddenly blanked on the drummer's name. Um, shit. Um, uh, if I, I'll remember it and I'll throw it yep. in. Yep. Um, but we cut it as a trio. Um, Larry Brown was the engineer and Spencer was there and we cranked up so huge in the studio and did that. And I just, I just dug him so much. I loved his energy and his, his enthusiasm, um, for, for what we were doing. And then after we did the album, we ended up, um, going and doing some live gigs and Gil Matthews ended up playing drums on those who was the drummer in the Aztecs. And, um, and I still talk to Gil uh and then at one and then we did that stuff for a while and then eventually that that kind of petered out but it was so much fun playing live with him and um and then we were actually talking about doing an, a, a project that was going to be me and billy and mick fleetwood and some people and then billy ended up moving back to australia and um and then just going back to work and i think he was doing a an album called marrakesh or something like that when when he died, and I was so shocked when, when I heard he had passed away because he's one of those guys that you think they're going to live forever because they have yeah. such a profound energy uh, about them. Uh, but I, I loved it. I, I loved uh, hooking up with Billy. It was it was pretty amazing. And, cool. uh, I, I still miss him. Still talk to his wife. Uh, we're on friends on Facebook and we stayed yep. in touch. So. You know, um just speaking of Billy, I played, oh geez, it was about 20 years ago now, I played guitar for a, a solo artist that was signed with Sony, and his manager was a chap named Michael Browning, who used to be ACDC's manager back in the Bon Scott days. Oh, wow. And um, there was a TV series on at the time called Long Way to the Top. It was uh, a history of Australian rock and roll, and he featured quite prominently in it. And I asked Michael something about it you know like um how it was talking about acdc etc and he said man I was, a, I was a bit pissed off because they kept asking me about acdc but that's not my proudest achievement i was i really what is and he said man i i discovered rock and roll in australia when i walked past the pub one day and saw this guy playing in there and it was billy thorpe and he just went that is the future whatever that is that guy's doing there that is the future and wow. he always said that was his um most proudest achievement and yeah you'd think acdc are huge but it just goes to show you that yeah uh, what a, yeah, i what love acdc too man what a man those guys man old stuff with bon man what a singer jesus give me a break and stuff yeah. I, I was i've always been a huge fan of those guys yeah 
Folks, uh, this is the last call for any questions uh, for Leland uh, as before we wrap things up. But uh, just talking about ACDC, that man, Australian rock and roll, there's, there's definitely a sound. And I think you know, Billy Thorpe was a big, uh, yeah. a big part of that, ACDC, et cetera. I'm pretty proud to be an Australian when I think about some of those. Oh, times you should there. be. Yeah. You should be. It's a, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, a, it's a magnificent country. I mean, I, every time I've come there, I've always had just the best time. And then just great hangs with people there. And uh, we some of our most enjoyable times with Phil Collins were there when we filmed uh, Billy Don't Lose That Number. We did a couple of we did our Road Warrior segment outside of Perth. Oh, and really? then we did a, and, and we did the, uh, the the western part of that thing the, the like cowboy scene was uh, outside of sydney uh, i think it was places called like australian it was like an old ghost town that they brought in all these old buildings and stuff and we had such a great time and we filmed uh, uh we filmed out on a boat in sydney harbor last time i was there i climbed the harbor bridge and did all that stuff i really Is enjoy it, it. Is there a particular part of the world that when you go and you got to do a world tour that you go, yes, I get to go to so-and-so? Is there any particular well, standout cities? Yeah, there's, you know, again, it's like talk, talking about guitar players or, yeah. you know, drummers. Um, yeah. There's so many. I love going to Australia, New Zealand. Um, I've loved, you know, being all throughout Europe. I mean, because the thing is, the people are, when you're connecting with people through music, everything's great. I've, I've been to Japan like 20 sometimes. I love, I've been going there since 1970. I love going to Japan. Uh, on Phil Collins' um, uh, but, uh, um, first final farewell tour, farewell tour, we were going to places that we had never toured before, and that, that was his whole reason for doing it. So we were in the Middle East. We were up in Estonia and Latvia. And, and just seeing all those places in, in Bucharest and you know all these places, I just love it all you know it, the opportunity that music gives you to see the world is, is pretty remarkable and seeing it on those terms where it doesn't matter that if people don't speak the, the language they yeah. they they're, they're still in it and yeah. uh just to connect with an audience no matter where you are is great and then uh, I, and i'm not one of these people that sits in a hotel room I, I, wherever i am i like to get out and explore the towns and yeah. see yeah. what they have to offer and there's been Many and I, I've spent tons of time in France and in England because I worked for many years with an artist named Veronique Sanson, who's kind of like the Joni Mitchell of France. And uh, and then with Phil, we we would always be in England a lot because we'd rehearse over there for like a month and then we'd be gigging for a, you know a month over there. So you know it, it, all these places become like a second home. Man, what a what a, what a profession to have uh, done your entire life to be. During yeah. the world, getting paid to yeah. tour the world and connecting with people, like It'd you say. It should be illegal. <laughs> yeah, it should, shouldn't it? Uh, now, Nick has got one last question. Man, you owe us, Nick. I think you should, if you haven't already, order Leland's uh, Coffee Finger Book, Coffee Finger Book, <laughs> Coffee Table Book. <laughs> um, in order to get this one question in there. Do you have a favorite published bass book that you would recommend to purchase? I had so much fun playing with your channel last night. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, no, I, I think the last bass book I used was when I was still playing upright. I was using like the Samandal book. I mean, it was all the, the classical um, upright 
stuff. I know there's a lot of really good books on the market, but I really I've never really gone through them and checked them out. So I really can't make a recommendation. But between what's available on online with all the, the amazing amount of tutorials online and the amount of stuff that's available in publishing, you know, I would just dig through it all and find stuff that 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 is meaningful for what you want to do, because they're all a little bit different, too, depending on what you want to do as a player. You know, if you want if you want to be a studio musician, you have to read, you know, but you don't have to be a reader to play rock and roll or, you know, or anything else. So it really kind of depends what your aspirations are, uh, where you would like to go with the business, how deeply you want to get into the technical side of things. Because um, some pretty pretty fundamental players that don't have a lot of technical um, chops have been in bands that they've made millions of dollars and sold millions of records, and other people that are profoundly technical and stuff are you know still struggling. So it really kind of depends what you want out of this all. Now you mentioned um, being able to read. Um, yeah. At least a chord chart to, to get you get you through things. Uh, yeah, I'd say. But 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 if you're doing movies and television and things like that, it's notation. You have yeah. to be able to read notation. Do it note perfect. Yeah. How yeah. about ear training? Now that's something anyone can learn to read uh, to read from a teacher. But ear training is something that's a little bit different. How did you develop your ear? I think just listening to a lot of music. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate that I, I grew up in a household where my parents had a pretty extensive record collection, and in all kinds of different styles. And I just listened to music all the time and I really would kind of immerse myself in it. And um, again, I, I didn't dig into things deeply technically. I, I, I've really been more of a visceral kind of fly by your gut kind of player where some people are incredibly analytical. I see videos of guys talking about, you know, they're playing and stuff and they've got charts and all kinds of stuff that they're explaining. And I go, hell, I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, I just, just give me a song. Let me kind of close my eyes, listen to that song and see what the song wants from me. Um, in terms of things like register, are you gonna, it's, if it's a gentle ballad, do you want to start high up on the neck and work your way into the song and things like that? Um, I'm going to move my computer. I'm just looking and I'm about to, I wasn't on power here. So oh, I'm okay. going yeah, to, yeah. I'm, I'm going to just walk us back to the, room that didn't have quite as good a um wi-fi but hopefully we won't uh crap hopefully, out here but yeah, I, yeah. I just need to plug my one sec course in and running um but there, there's so many you froze up oh yeah we're back we're back oh and leah's gone that's okay. That link still works if he wants to chime back in. If not, I oh, I'm going to change that screen because it says that I'm Leland Sklar, which I am not. I am Ricolis. Thank you. Um, hopefully, Lee will call back in. I did lose him when he changed rooms, but what a dude! What a dude! Um, oh, and he's back. There he is. There he is. How much longer are we going to go? Do you think? Mate, I mean, I'll, I'll round things up. I can round things up. I was. Well, no, but I'm not in a hurry, but I, I could I could move my power supply to be back to that other room if we want to talk longer. Man, I'm I'm I could keep talking with you for a while longer if you want to do that. Yeah, let, let me. 
Okay. If I do lose you, just dial back in on that link. I'll go back to me. Yeah, that's what I just well, that's what I just did because I lost you. But I'm gonna I've, I've just got another um, power here, so I'm gonna go back to the area where I was and plug in. And, uh, I, I got to say, it gets easier, doesn't it, doing these uh, live things? I can remember it took me a good twenty episodes before I didn't freak out at the fact that I was talking live and that shit can <laughs> shit can happen. Uh, I can remember the first time I had something go down. Actually, the, the the comfort zone for me was talking to Dave Friedman from Friedman Amplifiers, and uh, I'm a big fan of his show with Mark Kazansky, Tone Talk. And I said to them beforehand, "Oh, you guys are gonna have to cover me for the first ten minutes or so, man, because I'm just gonna be a rabbit in the headlights. Just uh, I'm talking live." Yeah. And they went, "Nah, man. People tune in for the for the train wreck. If things go wrong, that's what that's why they want to tune in to see you live." And well, th- th- that's my YouTube channel. It's like I'm sitting there with a squeaky chair and, and half the time I'm in the middle of a video and all of a sudden a commercial comes on, even though I've gotten rid of, you know, I, I thought I've gotten rid of commercials and, you know, and, and everybody just keeps going, no, we love it because I, I don't prepare anything like mm. you're doing. Yep. You know, I, 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 I figure out what song I want to do and then I go and, and I make myself, I keep saying, I, I make my copious notes and... Um, and so that I'm getting like credits right for the songs I'm going to do and who was on them. Yep. And then I just fly by the seat of my pants. And usually I'll give myself one r- run through of the song if I'm going to play along just to kind of g- try to remember what it was. Um, and, and, it's, and it's funky, but I, I really like that. I've seen too many really super slick videos that looks like, you know, pe- you know, like they've got the green screen going and all kinds of like a cool studio. And I go. Yes, I ended up having to get a green screen for a video for our band. Um, but, you know, I, I like just being in this funky room with all kinds of junk around me and stuff. It's yep. pretty, uh, you know, it's just an it's just an adventure every day. It is. It is. And I, I do like that that whole flying of by the seat of your pants uh, kind of vibe. As, as you mentioned, I said this straight away to you before we started. You know, I haven't researched your career i haven't done any notes uh and things started to flow for me when i stopped doing that and just simply start yeah. with the, the question of what started the love affair and taking notes i told you you're going to see me taking notes and, and i have been um now steve n i'm assuming that steve norris um is saying is there anyone you've always wanted to work with or meet that you haven't yet um there's you know there's a, a number of people who I would love to have had an opportunity to work with. Um, I've, I've mentioned it before that um, I'm a huge Winwood fan. It would have been nice to have d- done some stuff with Winwood. Um, I've, I, I've met Elton, and, but I've never had a chance to work with Elton. And they actually called me when Bob Birch, uh, his bass player at the time, was, was injured by being hit by a truck in Canada. Whoa. And they called me and asked me if I could cover for the rest of the tour, but I was already on tour in, in France with Veronique Sanson. Um, you know, Paul Simon, you know, I, I, I've always been a Paul Simon fan, and I've done a bunch of, number of albums with Art Garfunkel, but never worked with Paul. But, um, you know, there, there's, there's lots of people out there. I mean, I'm, you know, again, I'm a fan of so much music, and you can't work with everybody, but every once in a while I hear somebody and go, oh, this would be... This would be a fun thing, you know. It's it's like, um, oh, I don't know, yeah, Zizi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, is there anybody out there that um, 
people would be surprised to find out is just a super nice human. Because I know that some, some people can have a, a bit of an aura about them, just their, their public persona, and then you meet them in real life and you go, you are nothing like what I thought you'd be. Is there anybody that springs to mind like that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, one of the, I mean, I had, I didn't think he was going to be a drag or anything, but I did an album with John Kay, who was the singer in Steppenwolf. And everything with him was always, you know, black leather and sun, you know, and dark glasses and all this. And I was going, man, you know, just it could be a, what a, who knows? He was the sweetest cat. I mean, really? just one of the nicest people I worked with, man, just great. Um, I'd known Alice Cooper forever. And a lot of people might have expectations about Alice, but, yeah. you know, Vince is just a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, there, there's been, there's been, you know, I'll tell you one of the nicest people I've ever met in this business. brain is just gone uh, it was a pro it was an artist from oh yeah it was an artist from Austra uh, from south africa um this female artist and um we went in the studio and uh there was i was going to play on like 12 tracks but they had three different drummers that were going to be doing the thing and each one of them was going to do four tracks on it and one of them was thomas lang the other was simon phillips and the other was charlie watts Wow. And and Charlie said he would do it if he could be the first one because he didn't want to follow either of those guys. But he hung out for the whole week. And I'll tell you, Charlie was one of the sweetest people I've ever hung out with. I didn't I expected him to be cool. Yeah. But at one point he would they were changing. Uh, he was changing a drum head. And so I grabbed the old head and I said, man, would you sign this for me? And so he writes to Lee, blah, 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 whatever he wrote. And he writes Charlie Watts and he hands it to me. And then as I'm walking, as I'm putting it away, he grabs it back and he writes the Rolling Stones on it. He goes, in <laughs> case you forget. <laughs> and I went, don't worry, I'm not going to forget. Um, but, you know, and that was one of the charming things too, like with Phil Collins is Phil, like at the height of his powers, I remember we went to see, the, there was a, a venue in Los Angeles, the Universal Amphitheater, which was like one of the main places. And they were doing Tommy there. And it was like all those guys were there. And 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 so I went up with Phil and we're, we're hanging out this thing. And there was like some movie stars there. And, and Phil's got his camera and he's going, do you think they would take a picture with me? And I looked at him, I said, they're shitting their pants that you're standing here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> But he was one of these guys that, you know, in his mind, he was still like this guy living, you know, going to the local pub and yeah. with his friends and stuff and didn't really see that he's this international superstar or everybody else sees him. So you get all these different things. But most people have really been pretty cool. It's 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 pretty rare that you think somebody's going to be a, a, a real drag. Yeah. Uh, but once in a while, there is somebody like that you think. Or you think they're going to be cool and they turn out to be one major asshole. And you just kind of go, okay, well, I, I'm going to try to still enjoy their music, but it's going to be hard because now I know what they are. Yeah, sure, so. sure. You know, it's been a real real eye-opener just doing these chats. So, uh, as I mentioned, this is number 52. And, um, man, everyone has been so damn nice. Uh, I've had one person that was a bit rock star-ish towards me and wouldn't talk to me before the before it went live um and funnily enough 
he's only known in his native country, nowhere else, and you get the big international guys and it's just like talking to a, an old friend, you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I do have a friend yeah, who's I mean, a, that's... Go ahead. I, I do have a friend that's a quite well-known guitar player in Australia here, uh, and I remember back in the early 90s when his band was at, at their peak saying, um, is there any any real assholes you've met or... Uh, nice guys, etc. Like I've just asked, asked you, and he said, you know, most people are really nice. It's the guys who are almost famous that can be yeah. a bit, yeah. Don't you know who I am? Kind of thing. And yeah. it's probably well, you, why you they won't that, get that. Yeah, well, you find that sometimes in the studio, like the really seasoned artists that you're working with are the greatest people to work with. You get the people that's their first, it's their first album, and people have been blowing smoke up their butts for a while and they're starting to believe they're pre-press it's like talking about a blockbuster movie before it's come out yeah. it's only a blockbuster after it's successful it's not there's no pre-blockbuster so some of some of those people can be a real a bit of a pain in the butt because they're surrounded with sycophants that are telling them oh you're going to be the next big thing you're great and and you're sitting there going you know this is your first album and i've done like a couple of thousand records. I'd love to help you, but you're acting like you know everything. Hmm. So, but, but but they're rare. It's few and far between like that. Yep. So. I've got another question that's just popped up from uh, my friend Gabor from the Super Fun Awesome Happy Time Pedal Show. Um, cool. I, I still laugh at that name, Gabor. Uh, I don't, I can never remember it unless I read it. But uh, he would like to know what your most memorable live gig has been is there anything that springs to mind uh, um god that's again that's it's so hard to say because there's been so many um god you know you know i mean it was fun like when phil collins was doing tarzan when they were when we were premiering that that project um, we did the we did the premiere in New York, and um, Tina Turner flew in because she sang on like one of the main songs on it, and she flew in and played with us live, you know. And you're just sitting there going, "It's Tina, that's Tina," you know, kind of thing, and you're sort of freaking out and stuff. And she was so sweet, so so delightful. Um, but there's been so many. I mean, the first on James Taylor's first tour, we played Carnegie Hall. You know, and that's one of the and coming up as a, as a kid that was studying classical piano, the thought of walking into Carnegie Hall was pretty astounding. Um, but there's been, you know, so many great gigs. But there's also the thing to me is um, I don't I don't look at like size of venues or anything, any stuff like that is important because I'm just as happy playing in a pub as I am in a stadium. Uh, I just love if people are having a good time, you know, it, it's done deal. It's it's all good. And I, I found that because one of the people I work with is a, a singer named Judith Owen, who's married to Harry Shearer from Spinal Tap. And he oh, does really? The voices. Okay. Yeah, and do, does the voices on the bunch of the voices on The Simpsons. And Judith is a Welsh singer, songwriter, uh, pianist, amazing artist. Um, and like we were touring in the north of England and we were like in a, in a pub with like 40 people in it. And I had these guys come up to me going, God, last time I saw you, man, you were in like Wembley Stadium. What are you doing here? I said, I'm playing music. Are you having a good time? And they went, well, yeah. I said, good. 
that's it. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so do you, do you yeah. still play the piano? You, you mentioned playing the, the piano yeah. in the no. I could I I could noodle around with it, but um, I'm too I'm too far removed from it at this point. Um, so I'd rather just go listen to some great piano players. I know it's so many great musicians. I just go now nah, now. Nah, I'm, I'm this is when I turn into fanboy. Yeah, kind of situation. If you couldn't play bass anymore, what instrument would you take up? Um. If I couldn't play bass anymore, I'm not sure if I would play anything because really? I have other interests. I have other interests because when I started with James Taylor, um, I, I was uh, I was working as an artist. I mean, I, I was painting and, 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 and illustrating. I thought I was going to be a technical illustrator oh, cool. and, um, and and I love welding. I love sculpting. So if, if suddenly I couldn't do music anymore, I might just redirect my creative thing and just be a a fan of, of music and go back, go back into the arts again, rather than starting up another instrument again. Okay. I would, I can't say I would never do it, but nothing, no, there would be nothing that comes to mind that would draw me out. I mean, whatever would take me away from playing bass might impact other instruments. Like if I couldn't do that, cause I would, one of my favorite instruments still is cello, you know, so it would have, you know, maybe it would have been nice to spend a little time and maybe get some chops up. I think Jack Bruce was a cellist. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, um, and I, I just love cello. It's really, a, to me, one of the instruments that's closest to the human voice. It really has a quality to it. But but I would probably do something more in the arts. Yeah. Um, I, I did see in the um, in the comments earlier that somebody went and checked out your website when we mentioned the book and uh, they, they commented on, on your art. Um, and I wasn't exactly sure what they, what they were talking about, but so that, that's another big love, huh? Well, I just went through a whole thing that was really interesting. I got contacted like about a week ago um, by somebody that sent a photograph and they said, I'm not sure if these are, are you did these or not, but we have the, and it was two paintings that I had done in the late sixties that I gave to somebody to hold for me. And I haven't seen them in over 50 years. I never knew what happened to them. And I just picked them up the other day and I've got them back. And uh, it's blew my mind because it's, it's suddenly I was back in college again and everything. And I have them over. I just delivered them today to the guy I did the book with who's going to do a, um, a proper scan of them. And I'm going to I've got um, three paintings up on my website and then a bunch of illustrations I did. And I'm going to add these two paintings to that, too. And do, we're doing like real high end um, uh, posters of them, but like almost museum quality. And they're limited edition, signed and numbered and stuff. So check them out, though. It's it's really it's really goofy stuff. It's quintessential 60s. Awesome. Awesome. I guess when, when you're creative, it comes out any way it can. Yeah, I mean, there, there was like... Uh, there's so many people I know that that have done, you know, multiple things like e even actors like um, Henry Fonda, the great actor. He painted like Andrew Wyeth. I mean, he was an exquisite painter. Kim Novak was a great painter. Um, a lot of people that are in in creative fields, they go they have multiple areas of uh, of expression. And it's, it's fun. I just I always enjoyed it. I mean, it's just nice to. And the thing I loved about doing that stuff, it was incredibly singular. 
uh, where when you're doing music, you're dealing generally with a lot, you know, other people on it, where when I was welding, working in steel, my whole world was a, a light about that big, just the end of a torch and, you know, and had a hood on and everything. So different, different, different disciplines. So you mentioned welding. Am I right in thinking you're a bit of a uh, hot rod enthusiast? Yeah. Have I seen pictures of you in the hot rod? Yeah. So that's where yeah. I could see people yelling out ZZ Topper as you're cruising down the, oh, <laughs> the yeah. freeway in one of those, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely those guys, especially Billy, man. He's had some amazing cars. But, yeah, I had a bunch of cars, and I got rid of almost everything just because I didn't have the time or really the finances to do that because I'm still, at the end of the day, I'm a sideman. I'm not the artist, so you know you're you're working on a different level than those people. But I kept. I have a a, a 1923 uh, Ford uh, T bucket, but it's uh, it weighs about the same as a smart car, and it has a thousand horsepower. So, you know, so it's a it's it's a it's a ride and a half. But I was just remembering when I was a number of years ago when I was in Australia, I met a guy named Ken Warby, and Ken Warby at that time held the world speed record for jet powered boats. And uh, and I hooked up with him and he and his daughter were campaigning jet dragsters in Australia and uh, went out to the drags with them. And they opened up the back of their truck and there's this two cars with jet engines sticking out. Wow. <laughs> it was it was bitching and it was great. Man. Lee, I, I'm going to say thank you so much for your time, mate. We've, we've gone for two hours now. I'm sure you've got um, things to do, places to be, etc. cetera. And um, man, I was really surprised when I messaged you that you said, Sure. No. Well, none of the, if you want, to, if you want to do it again down the pike, give me a shout. I'd love to, man. I'd love to because um, okay. I find it very easy to just talk to people unplanned, as we, as we said. And um, yeah, uh, I'm hoping it wasn't too much of a, an issue getting you into. The, did the link I sent you all worked fine? Oh no, and, it, yep. it all worked. The, the yep. biggest drag for me is just that room where I do most of the stuff. I when I do my live stream, I go downstairs to where the where, where the modem is. And I go in with an Ethernet so I don't have to deal with crap. But the room where I do my videos in there, it can get a little bit wonky back there. So that's why I moved up here. It's a little bit closer, about um, halfway there. So Awesome. It's all well, good. It's been good. fantastic chatting to you. And I am going to take you up on that. I'll, I'll hit you up again in the near future for another coffee. As I say, it's never a bad day when I it. get to sit and talk with musicians from around the world. Uh, folks, if you've enjoyed this, I'd really appreciate a, a like and a subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And um, same with Lee's channel and the coffee book at Lee's com. But it's on every video has links to, to, the, to uh, uh, every video on my YouTube channel has links to my website and to the clubhouse. So it's, it's real. It's a no brainer. You just go in there and then pop in. Awesome. Now, I'd feel really out of place doing this with anybody else, but I just want to say, Leland Sklar, I salute you. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>